Well, if you turn uh, to uh, Song of Songs, uh, this evening we're going to be in uh, chapter 6, 7, and uh, part of chapter 8. In the Church Bibles, that's page uh, 684. So we're going to uh, read... uh, uh, Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 4, uh, to Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 4. Uh, now, out of all of the passages we've read so far, uh, this uh, section uh, has the most uh, differences in terms of what different uh, translations say who is speaking. And so for the purpose of where uh, the sermon is going to go, Uh, I just want to point out that the only time that the friends are going to speak is in chapter 6 and verse 13. So if you look at chapter 6 and verse 13, uh, that says, uh, Come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back, come back, that we may gaze on you. So that's the part where as a congregation uh, you uh, can join in. Uh, And just if you're unsure how to pronounce uh, Shulamite, I've just said it, Shulamite. Uh, If you pronounce it differently, it's not the end of the world, um, really. Uh, But that's the part where uh, you need to speak uh, to Paula and I. Uh, So at that point, you speak for the rest of it. Don't worry about whether it's he, she, or friends, okay? So with that explanation uh, over, uh, we can begin. You are as beautiful as Terza, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops with banners. Turn your eyes from me, they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them is missing. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Sixty queens there may be, and eighty concubines, and virgins beyond number. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique. The only daughter of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines praised her. Who is this that appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession? I went down to the grove of nut trees to look at the new growth in the valley, to see if the vines had budded or the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I realized it, my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people. Why would you gaze on the Shulamite as on the dance of Mahanaim? How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, looking towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are, and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. May the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes send out their fragrance, and at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my beloved. 
If only you were to me like a brother who was nursed at my mother's breasts. Then if I found you outside, I would kiss you and no one would despise me. I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house, she who taught me, who has taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the nectar of my pomegranates. His left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. All of us at some point in our lives have been wronged in some way. Someone uh, has hurt us or damaged us. Uh, and within our relationships, often things can go wrong and we feel hurt. I wonder, how do you respond when someone hurts you? Some people respond with revenge. That's a common response. If someone does something to me, I am going to do something back to them. But there are other responses in wrong, to being wronged in our relationships. There is the silent treatment. So when you have been hurt, you just refuse to speak. And you let the person know you're not happy with them when you're silent. Uh, there are outbursts of anger or rage. That can be a response to someone doing something that upsets us. There are guilt trips. You won't, let, you won't let them forget how much you have been hurt. And then there is the kind of mock forgiveness where you say you forgive them, but you hold what they've done in a kind of vault. And then when you've done something wrong or when you really want something, you open the vault and you let it out so that you can either get away with what you've done or you can get what you want. They're all common responses to when we have been hurt in a relationship. Revenge, silence, anger, guilt trips, holding it in an account. Last time uh, when we looked at Song of Songs, the man has been wronged by the woman. He had been rejected by her and she came uh, to regret this. But it ended happily last time in chapter 6, verse 3, where we read, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. So although she was alone, felt alone because of her sin, he was still with her. He was in a covenant relationship with her. He did not let her go. So they'd had a fallout. He had been wronged, but at the end they were back together. But the question that this uh, next passage answers is this. How will he treat her after he has been wronged? Is he going to give her the silent treatment or the guilt trip or take revenge or get angry or hold it in account? How is he going to treat her after he has been wronged? And how is she going to respond to that treatment? And what I hope we're going to see in this section is the right way to forgive and the right way to respond and live in that forgiveness. What this passage shows us is redeeming love. Redeeming love. How can we restore or redeem a relationship that has been damaged? So they have been in, a, in, a, in an argument, if you like, They've been restored, they're back together, but now we're going to see where things go. And the first thing to notice is that despite the wrong that she has done, he still loves her. And he shows he loves her, first of all, by reminding her of her beauty. That's in chapter 6, verses 4 to 10. How do, how do you feel when you've messed up, when you've done something wrong? Well, all of us, I'm pretty sure, feel pretty rotten, don't we? When we've done something wrong, we've hurt somebody, we feel horrible about it. I mean, you wouldn't be um, normal or right if you were perfectly happy for, to hurt people and see that they're hurt and feel nothing. Usually we feel bad about that, don't we? Even after all has been confessed, 
Even after you've been forgiven, you can still feel guilt, you can still feel horrible about what's happened. But the man here, right at the beginning, reminds the woman of her beauty because she's going to be feeling rubbish. We can see it as a reminder because he repeats some of what he said before. She still has hair like goats. She still has all her teeth, which are still like sheep, and her temples are still like pomegranates. That's great that she can know that, isn't it? Remember, though, these are compliments uh, of the time. But it's, uh, because it's repeated, we can see he's reminding her, she's, you're still beautiful. But there is also new truth about her beauty here as well, uh, which reminds her that, she, is, that he, she has not lost his affection and his admiration. And there are two new aspects of beauty that we see here. First of all, the power of beauty, and secondly, the uniqueness of her beauty. So first of all, the power of her beauty. We see the power of her beauty in a number of ways. In verse 4, notice that she is as beautiful as Terza and as lovely as Jerusalem. Now, Terza was an ancient capital city that was actually the first capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel when it split from the south. You remember that story from uh, the, the books of kings that we've been studying? There was a split in the kingdom, and the first capital city of Israel in the north was Terza. And Jerusalem... That was the capital city of the south. And this was where the kings lived. They were powerful cities. Also, the names Terza and Jerusalem have significant names. Terza means pleasant, and Jerusalem means peace. And he's saying here that she brings both pleasantry and peace to him. And notice uh, in, uh, at the beginning there, Uh, In verse 4, she is as majestic as troops with banners. Troops were powerful armies, but with the banners, they were a sight to behold. So he's describing here the awe of her beauty like a vast army, but it is beauty like with the banners. Beauty is awesome, but beauty can also be frightening. And the frightening power of her beauty is clearly seen in verse 5. He tells her, turn your eyes from me. They overwhelm me. It's not that her eyes are horrible to look at, but rather they have a power of attraction that he cannot resist. There is a, a, like, almost a mysterious, almost magical power over him that is both fascinating and terrifying. And there is, isn't there, a terrifying aspect of beauty. There is a power over a man that a female can have. There is a power in the female body that can entice and attract a man that is a powerful beauty. And women should be aware of the power of beauty. It can be used for good and it can be used for evil. The body can be used to manipulate men and to allure men, often for their approval or attraction so that you feel good. But it is unhelpful for men who wish to strive for holiness, isn't it? So as much as men, like we read in Job, need to make a covenant with our eyes not to look at a woman lustfully because it's a powerful pull into sin, so women also ought to be helping men not to be looking at them in the way that they do dress and act. Because the body is a powerful thing. It's a powerful beauty. Another thing, just in application of that, is to be careful about being alone together with someone of the opposite sex who's not your husband and wife. There is a power that is beyond your ability to control. In the New Testament, we read, beware lest you think you stand, lest you fall. Because if we think we can control this power, we are very foolish indeed. And for the sake of our purity and our witness, we need to be careful how we live. On the other hand, beauty uh, can be a power that can be used for good, as it reflects the beauty of our Saviour. 
Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 says uh, this, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles or the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So she is reminded that she still has a power over him with her beauty. But the second reminder is the uniqueness of her beauty. Uh, Terza and Jerusalem uh, are unique as capital cities. There's only one capital in each country. And so as, we show, as well as showing the power of her beauty, those two cities show the uniqueness. But the uniqueness is most clearly seen in verses 8 to 10. Look at what those verses say. Sixty queens there may be, and eighty concubines and virgins beyond number. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique, the only daughter of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines praised her. He is not saying here, you are my favorite woman out of all of my queens and concubines. That's not what he's saying. Notice here the progression in numbers. 60, 80, without number. What he's saying is there may be lots of women out there. But in verse 9, he's saying she is unique. She is his perfect one. She's like an only child to its mother. No one else can rival the uh, affection of an only child to its mother. There's no siblings to rival that. And he's saying she is so unique that the 60, 80, and without number of women call her blessed and praise her. Uh, obviously, um, this is uh, called the Song of Songs, but Solomon's name is attached to it. And I think these verses, more than any other in the book perhaps, apart from the ones that use Solomon's name, make us think of Solomon, don't they? Solomon was the man who had so many wives and concubines, hundreds and hundreds of them. He could not say this to anybody. He couldn't say to any of them, you are unique. And I think the comparison is here to show the difference of this man in the song. This man has res resisted the attractions of all the others and has eyes only for his dove, his perfect one. Rather than be attracted to other women, he sees the one he has as unique. Not just compared to others, but in her own right. And that's seen again in verse 10. It says, who is this? That appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession. Now, I agree with some other translations that this is the man speaking, continuing his reminder of her beauty. Part of the reason for this is that the end of verse 10 can actually be translated in another way. Rather than majestic as the stars in procession, it is the exact same Hebrew wording as the end of verse 4, majestic as troops with banners. And so what it seems to be going on is there is two bookends to this uh, section, where he starts and ends with the same phrase, so it ties uh, things together. In, in poetry, it's called an inclusio. So it's a poetic form of speaking, where the beginning and end is the same thing. So he's describing her as, as cosmic in her beauty. Her beauty rivals the natural phenomena of the sun rising, the brightness of the moon and the stars. And the who is this, again, shows her uniqueness. Who is this? There's, there's no one else like this woman. No one else is as beautiful as this, cosmic in her beauty. And our spouse should be unique to us in this kind of a way. This is also the case if you're not married, but expect to be one day. There are an infinite number of women and of men we can gaze at. These days, they are just one click of a mouse away, aren't they? But every click takes a little bit away of the uniqueness in your heart that your spouse is to you, whether the one you are married to or the one you will be married to one day. Because you cannot undo 
those images that go into your mind. They are there. And so it takes a little bit away of that uniqueness that is so precious and special and that he's pointing out here. But the bigger point that's being made is that in the midst of pain and of sin, his response to her is to remind her of her beauty. When someone has failed, they do not need the silent treatment. They do not need revenge. They do not need sin to be brought up and churned over again and again and again. What we need when we have failed and we are seeking forgiveness is to know that you are still loved. When someone has failed you and they seek your forgiveness, remind them of what they still mean to you. Because that's what Jesus does with us, isn't it? Jesus constantly reminds us of his love for us. That's what the Lord's table is, isn't it? We do this often in remembrance of Jesus. And we're reminded over and over again, I still love you. There is still forgiveness. The cross of Jesus still stands. That's what he does with us. When we read his word, when we read the Bible, we read over and over again of how much God loves us and cares for us. We're reminded that he still loves us even when we've failed. So we've seen this this lovely response by him. But what about her? It can be easy to listen to the loving words of another, even of God himself, and not to believe them because we feel that we're too bad. But the woman here has an entirely different response in verses 11 and 12. And again, with these verses, uh, I see the woman speaking because the nut grove which she goes down to, is not the usual way of him speaking of her in the song. And also, uh, in verse 12, the first person pronoun I is only ever used by the woman in the song. So she says, I went down to the, nut gro- to the grove of nut trees to look at the new growth in the valley to see if the vines had budded or the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I realized it, my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people. Well, what does she do in response to these words of her beauty? Well, she goes to the uh, grove of nut trees to look at the new growth. It's an inspection of sorts. She wants to see the state of things. Have the vines budded? Are the pomegranates still blooming? You could look at this as her thinking, does he really mean what he says? Am I really still beautiful in his sight? And so she's tentatively going and seeking him out. It's likely that verse 11 is referring to the body of her lover. She's lingering around it, seeing if it's ready for love. She's examining the state of the relationship. What we see her doing here is returning to intimacy. Returning to intimacy. She doesn't hide away. She perhaps tentatively responds to his words to her. She makes a move. It's no good hearing that we've been forgiven and then living as if we're not. Now, this is true of both our earthly relationships and in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. There's no point in, in, in hearing the words, you are forgiven, and then walking around all miserable and morose as if we've not been forgiven. That's not to say we should be flippant about sin. Of course not. It's not to say that there aren't consequences. Of course there are. But when we're forgiven, we need to live in the light of that forgiveness. And that's what's going on here. And as she goes for intimacy in verse 11, all of a sudden in verse 12, she is whisked away. Her desire in verse 12, it says, set me among the royal chariots of my people. In other words, she swept off her feet with her prince and with the prince's people. He has responded to her, but he's also let others know that the relationship is right because the people see them together. He's not telling her she's forgiven and then going to his friends and talking about all the things she's done wrong. The friends see them together and they respond in verse 13. Come back, come back, O Shulamite. Come back, come back. 
that we may gaze on you. They also are captivated by her beauty, and they want to keep gazing at her. They see her in the royal chariot that's being whisked away because they're going to be on their own, uh, which would be for obvious reasons. But they want her to stay because they want to gaze upon this beautiful woman. But the most important point in this verse, in verse 13, is that for the first time in the song, she is called Shulamite. She is called Shulamite. Now, this could simply mean that she was a woman from Shunem, but more is going on here, I think, because Shulamite is the feminine form of the word Solomon, which sounds like the Hebrew word Shalom, which is peace. What's going on here is that at this point in the song, she, the Shulamite, and her man, the Solomon, are at peace with one another. And everybody around can see that this is the case. So they call her Shulamite. We need to be ready to return to intimacy, to return to peace with one another and with God when we are forgiven. Jesus Christ publicly died so all could see that there can be peace with God. So we need to come to Jesus with our sin and lay it at the cross and not bear it anymore and recognize that there is now peace with God. And at the baptisms recently, we had a public expression of people who are at peace with God. We gazed upon these ones that were being baptized. We saw them and we could say to them, Shulamite, you are at peace because they are at peace with God, expressing that through testimony and through baptism. There is a a peace with God that we can have and we now, in peace, need to live out our lives in the freedom that we have as Christians. We no longer need to be um, uh, miserable over sin. We lay it at the cross and we live in the joy of forgiveness. In the joy, if you like, of being swept off our feet by Jesus, taken on wonderful adventures with him. So after sin, he has reminded her of her beauty and she has returned to him looking for intimacy. But now he goes further in his next description. What we see next is, the restore, is restoring the intimacy. Verse 13 uh, breaks in the middle uh, where he asks a question. Why would you gaze on the Shulamite as on the dance of Mahanaim? The dance of Mahanaim literally means the dance between two camps. And it probably refers to a dance that was done between two army camps to entertain the troops. It brought much joy to those that were watching. There's no indication that it was anything sexual or provocative. He's asking a question as to why the friends want to gaze upon her. And then he answers the question himself with another description of her beauty. The previous description... Uh, was not very erotic, only the face is mentioned. There he was reminding her of her beauty as a reminder, but here the description becomes much more erotic because he doesn't just want to remind her that that she's beautiful, but he wants to restore the intimacy between them sexually. And so the restoration theme in these verses comes in, in two parts. We see her actions from restoration. So his words of restoration and then her actions from restoration. His words of restoration and then her actions from those words of restoration. So his words of restoration are his description of, his, of her beauty. And it begins in verse, uh, chapter 7 verse 1 uh, where he begins with her sandaled feet. And then from the feet... He works his way up her body, ending in verse 5 with her head. And again, perhaps some of these descriptions uh, need a bit of explanation. Uh, So some of them are obvious. Her her graceful legs 
are like jewels. They're, they're, they're basically saying they're a work of art, uh, the work of an artist's hands. Uh, it may seem strange to, that the navel uh, is described as a rounded goblet, uh, I'd say, and the waist is like a mound of wheat. I certainly wouldn't recommend uh, using that one uh, perhaps today. Uh, but I've mentioned before uh, how fashions change over time, and it's a relatively modern phenomenon, actually, to have thinness as the epitome of beauty. Uh, in the ancient world, um, prominent navels apparently were prized. So there you go. But wine and wheat, uh, more than just what they look like, um, wine and wheat indicate a feast to be enjoyed. He, what he sees from her, he wants to enjoy with her. That's what's going on there. Uh, the neck being an ivory tower uh, speaks of, of strength. Uh, the eyes are the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabim. Uh, a, a pool of water is uh, both beautiful, in this case, and life-sustaining. So, uh, and, and Bath Rabim actually means daughters of many, uh, possibly some commentators say referring to all the broken hearts uh, that this woman has broken because they can't have her because she's his. And her nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, <laughs> not referring to its size, uh, but probably referring more to its nobility and security that comes from the tower. Uh, so there's nothing to say she's got a big nose. In fact, if you um, want to see a funny picture on Google, uh, if you type in uh, these descriptions, you can get an, an, artist's, uh, uh, an artist's description of what it looked like. Uh, and, and you'll see, therefore, why you don't need to take these actual, actually literally. Uh, these are, are descriptions that have much meaning. So as interesting as the description is, the bigger point is what he wants to do after he has described her. So he's, he's used these descriptions of her beauty. And then in verse 6 he says, uh, How beautiful you are and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. So he's described her uh, from feet to head. And then he sums up in verse 6, How beautiful you are, how pleasing. Uh, so she's pleasing and beautiful and delightful, but then in verses 7 to 9, the focus turns on her breasts and what he wants to do with them. So he says, your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree, I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like the clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. So he's saying, she is like a palm tree with fruit, her breasts are the fruit, and he wants to climb the tree and grab the fruit. I think it's quite straightforward what he's saying there. I think I've said enough, I don't need to describe any more. But more uh, than the description, what he's saying here is that he wants a restoration of intimacy, and he shows that with his words and with what he plans to do with his actions. So they, they are his words of restoration. So we see him giving those words, but now we see how she responds in verses 9 to 13 as she begins to act on those words of restoration. And verse 9, you'll see in the, in the NIV that there is, or in your Bible, uh, that there is a gap in between verse 9 where she starts speaking. What's going on here is there's an interruption. She's so excited by his, his description and with what he wants to do that she interrupts him really quickly with, may the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. So she interrupts him at, ver at verse 9, and, and he, he desires her, and her interruption is basically saying, well, if you want to climb the palm tree, and you want to taste my wine, you go for it, have all you want. That's what she's saying there. And then in verse 10, she says something which, again, shows restoration. And I just want to pause here for a moment, because this, um, this is uh, really interesting to see. She says in verse 10, I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. And the word there, desire, in the Hebrew is only found two other times in the Bible. Both of them are at the beginning of Genesis. 
After Adam and Eve had sinned, there was a curse on them. And one of the curses was that the relationships between the man and the woman would be strained. This is what uh, was said. Oops. There we go. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So the word, for de- word desire here means that there is a desire, a wrong desire for domination. She would desire the position of leadership and to dominate the husband. And at the same time, his rule over her is going to be naturally harsh. And that's all part of the curse between the man and the woman. Then, after another sin in the next chapter of Genesis, where Cain murdered his brother Abel, God says this to Cain. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you but you must rule over it. So sin, in this case, wants to dominate our lives, but we have to rule over it or rule it harshly to get rid of it, which, of course, we all fail at. These verses, with the words of desire there, show the fallenness of desire, a wrong desire to dominate and a refusal to dominate sin. But notice in the song... How desire is used here. Notice the restoration of the word. She belongs to him and his desire is for her. Things are the right way round. It's the opposite of Genesis 3 and verse 17. Once she believes the truth about what he is saying about her and about his desire for intimacy with her, she begins to live in the light of that truth. And this is so true with the gospel. We can understand about the atonement. We can understand in our minds about forgiveness of sins. We can believe in our hearts that Christians should be joyful and all of those things. But we are only set free to live that way when we believe in our hearts that Jesus really holds nothing against us, that he has forgiven us, that the cross is sufficient to forgive all of our sins. We have to believe that in our hearts. And it's also true in our relationship with one another. If you have been genuinely forgiven, then we need to start living with each other in the light of that forgiveness. And the best response to the offer of forgiveness is to live in the right way. It's to love. The freedom that she uh, now feels in the light of that forgiveness begins to show in how she is acting around him. Her desire is for him. There has been, uh, his desire is for her. There has been a restoration of intimacy. Well, the freedom that she now feels is shown even more Uh, in verses 11 to 13. Uh, In those verses, she plans an adventure with him in the countryside. Uh, She basically is asking him to to have a night away with her in the country, uh, spend the night in a village, and early the next day, uh, go and see some gardens. You know, if you ideas for weekends away, you have one right there. But there is a, a sexual aspect here with the mandrakes in verse 13, because mandrakes were an aphrodisiac. And the first three letters in Hebrew for mandrakes is the same Hebrew word as it is for lovemaking. But the point here that we need to really see is not how to uh, plan a weekend away, but rather the point is the freedom that she feels to initiate all of this because she's confident now in the relationship with this man. She is going uh, to give him new and old wine. Wine that she stored up for him, things that he knows, and things that are now a surprise for him. This is a wife who is confident to please her husband in the light of his love for her. Old things that he knows, new things that he doesn't know. There is a confidence in this relationship. And this is what we should be aiming for in our marriages. Sexual love should be fun together for both the man and the woman. 
And it may be surprising, actually, to some that the woman is so forthright here. But it is a good thing. Both of them enjoying this gift that God has given them. And it is wonderful to see how the intimacy is restored from both the man and the woman. And we should be aiming for this in relationships. In human relationships, both are wronged at various times. And we need to both be ready to forgive. And when we are wronged, we need to forgive like this. Forgive in a way that gives freedom so that the other person can live and love as they, can, as they ought to and be free from the burden of guilt. And in our relationship with Jesus, this is how we are with him because he has completely forgiven us. We sang in our first song, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Yes, we have wronged him, but he has forgiven us and restored the relationship so we can live rightly in freedom for him. It is right that we work towards a restoration where things are put right, and that does happen. But there are times when things can go wrong. There can be intimacy in marriage, even after horrible sin, but some things that we have done or some things that we have suffered will never be undone while we are alive. There can be restoration, but scars remain. And they can be very painful, and it's worth acknowledging that, isn't it? There are no easy answers as to how to live with the consequences of sin, whether we have committed it ourselves or it has been committed against us. And the sin of uh, of, sec- of sexual sin, sexual abuse, is the most painful sin where the scars do remain. And it's, there's no easy way uh, to say, well, here's a 10-step plan to how to live with the consequences of those things that we've suffered. But what we do need to be keep, keep doing is coming back to the cross, to be both reminded of the forgiveness of our sin but also to be reminded that the cross is the place where there is real justice. Because either Jesus pays fully for sin, or one day those who have committed sin will pay for it themselves, and there will be justice. But the promise of Scripture is greater than there will be justice, because the promise of Scripture also means that one day those scars that we have will be gone, And all will be made right. Because when Jesus returns and calls us to be with him, there will be a restoration to intimacy that is full and complete. And and those things will be remembered no more. That's the hope that we have as Christians. That's the the hope that scripture uh, offers us that we can hold on to in times when those scars become more visible and painful, as they do, as they crop up over our lives. And that brings us to our final uh, point. However much we forgive and live in the light of that forgiveness, this side of heaven, there will always be those scars and those consequences, which is why, until glory, there will always be a reaching for more. And that's what we see in verses, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. As we come to these verses, they actually begin with the words, if only, if only. Uh, before we read them, just to explain something, there are, there are two types of if only. There is the if only of regret, the if only of regret. That is, if only I had not done this, or if only that had not happened. That's looking back, the if only of regret. But there is also the if only of longing. If only I had this in my life, it would be better. Okay? The if only of regret that looks backwards and the if only of longing which looks forward. Well, here in these verses, we really see the if only of longing. Something that she longs for but doesn't have. Look at the verses verses 1 to 2. If only you were, like, were to me like a brother, 
who was nursed at my mother's breasts. Then if I found you outside, I would kiss you. And no one would despise me. I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house. She who has taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the nectar of my pomegranates. Now, for some reason, which is not clear, and I don't really know, this couple cannot show a public display of affection. But a brother or sister in this culture could. But if he was a brother, she could, uh, she could fulfill that desire to kiss him in public. But in fact, there are four ways of affection that she wishes to show. Notice them. She would kiss him, she would lead him, she would bring him, and she would give him spiced wine to drink. She longs for more kisses, for more intimacy in the mother's house, where she would give him the delights of her love, which is the meaning of the spiced wine and the pomegranates. At this point in the song, the relationship is not bad. Verse 3 has them in an embrace. The relationship is good, but there could be more. There is a longing for more. And there will always be some reaching out for more. This side of heaven, there is no such thing as a perfect relationship. And in fact, I always worry when a couple say something to me like this, well, we never argue. Or everything in our relationship is just perfect. And I, in some ways, I sarcastically think, well, good for you. But, it's an, an, but don't get me wrong, it's a blessing uh, to be happily married, of course. And marriage should be a joy, and is a joy, and it is. But we all need to be growing in our love for one another. Are you saying, when you say those things, that you, you cannot love your spouse any better than you do right now? I certainly can. And I always will be able to love better and more because I'm always uh, growing in my uh, love for Jesus and in my love for others. And this is true in our relationship with God. There is a holy discontentment, isn't there, as a Christian? We long to be more holy, but we're joyful in where God has brought us. We're not what we once were, but neither are we what we will be. And this will continue until we reach glory. And there is hope for us because we are looking forward, reaching out to a heavenly future where every longing will be fulfilled. And this is the case because of Jesus. In verse 1, she's longing for him to be like a brother. And Jesus is the God who became our brother, who became flesh, and who publicly died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin so we could be in a relationship with God. There's a content. A contentment, yet reaching for more. And with this in mind, she refrains again, charges these daughters of Jerusalem in verse 4. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse of awakened love until it so desires. She speaks from the, from the if only of longing, if only I could do this, to warn against the if only of regret. She's longing here uh, for uh, public affirmation of her relationship. How much better is it for a relationship to be out in the open? And that's what marriage does for the Christian. It legitimizes the sexual love that is longed for, putting it in the context and security of a covenant relationship. And, in, and from that contentment that she has... She's warning the daughters of Jerusalem not to have if-onlys of regret from arousing and awakening love too early. And here are two examples uh, of the if-only of regret that comes in regards to relationships. Number one, if we don't wait for marriage, if we arouse or awaken sexual love too early, then we will not get back what we and our future spouses have lost. We will end up saying, if only I had waited. There's a warning here. Don't come to the place where you are going to say, if only I had waited. That's one. But the other obvious one with regards to marriage is who we marry. If we go down the track with an unbeliever, or we marry a, plan to marry a Christian that is an unwise match, you will have the pain of an if only of longing, I wish they were a Christian, 
that should never have been there in the first place because the marriage should not have taken place. Don't begin a relationship with a longing that shouldn't be a longing, if only they were a Christian. Rather, plan to spend your life with a Christian. And don't marry a project where you think, if only they were like this, but when I marry them, I'm going to change them. Because when you are engaged or when you are dating, you're on best behavior. It's only going to get worse. Both of those things are the it will be if-onlys of regret. So she says, don't arouse or awaken love until it so desires. As we've seen throughout the song, God's way is the best way, the most satisfying way, the most beautiful way. So let's conduct our relationships in the way that he has designed for us, imaging the wonderful God we have. And we do have a wonderful saviour, don't we? A wonderful saviour who reminds us of the beauty we have in him, who calls us to intimacy with him, where he doesn't treat us as a guilty sinner, but as a beloved sibling who always promises us more and more, and who always delivers that, and one day we'll see the fullness of that when we're in glory. So let us flee from revenge, from silent treatment, and from anything other than just loving as Jesus loves. And let's worship him through our imitation of him in how we respond to the hurts of others. Let's love our spouses. Let's love one another as God loves us, forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave us. Well, we're going to come around uh, the Lord's table uh, shortly after we've sung. uh, And we're going to be reminded again of what God has done for us in Christ. But before we um, uh, do that, we're going to stand and sing. There is a a fountain filled with blood. Uh, And while the musicians are going to there, I'm going to turn the plug on on the computer because I forgot to do that earlier. And then we'll stand and sing, There is a fountain filled with blood.